Hello and welcome again to All Against All. I am Don Rhodes, podcasting from the Upper West Side of Manhattan in New York, and I'm joined by Ben Moody. Hi. And who is podcasting, I'm guessing again, from the inner west of Sydney. Yeah, yep. God's country. God's country. The, what a, actually, yeah, I, I do love the inner west. It's, it's one of my like, favorite places on earth, really. Well, it's kind of like a lot of the shine has kind of gone out of it for me now because it's sort of um, everything that's so charming about it and likeable sort of fades into the background when you've lived there for sort of five years and you're um, all you can really focus on anymore is just the crushing financial burden of paying $470 (laughs) a week in rent to live above a garage. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's um that's like yeah like I I think everyone also like expects um like that uh, again things like are going to be more expensive in New York but it's actually not that different from Sydney <laughs> it's about the same <laughs> yeah oh, god anyway well I guess that's a good segue into uh, the news in Australia right yeah yeah so um I know this is exactly what we talked about last time um. But, um, you know, I guess with our focus on material stuff and uh, and financial stuff, I, like, Josh Frydenberg remains just absolutely fucking pathetic. I, I was actually thinking about this earlier, and I was like, you know, who like, who is more pathetic, him or Joe Hockey? Um, and Joe Hockey's kind of, like, weepy and, and, you know, pathetic that way, but, but Josh Frydenberg, I think, has, has this more, like, deep-seated kind of just absolute debasement. Um, well, he's, I think he's a lot like Scott Morrison in the sense that they both have that kind of like day-to-day demeanour and facial expression of one of those dogs that um, Darrow's kind of like cycle through their homes, you know, like the dogs <laughs> that just attach themselves to Darrow communities, those little like Jack Russell mix type things that just oh, hate yeah. everything in the world. And they just yeah. like they're really yappy little things, and they just have this permanent kind of scowl on their faces, and every, they're just sort of staring up at everything in the world, totally powerless to affect it and to defend themselves, just like seething with rage constantly, um, yeah. but just totally ineffectual. And I think that that, that is, is essentially so what what's encapsulated by both Frydenberg and Scott Morrison's facial expressions, which I think yeah. is kind of that is really the kind of cultural impulse that underlies sort of Australian um, suburban uh, it's not really the fact culture among the over 50s. And, yeah. and Frydenberg just, just packages it up in a slightly different aesthetic for people who are a bit richer, whereas Scott Morrison's is for people who are a bit poorer. So yeah. one is like if you like to have that expression on your face in line at Guzman and Gomez or Hungry Jacks. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good summary. Um, but the, the articles that, that have sort of uh, spurned this are, uh, it's basically Frydenberg again on his knees. Um, well, actually, no, that's not true. The first one is, uh, um, is about the banks saying that uh, doing anything that might even remotely affect them mm. is going to be bad for the economy because... Um, so I, I have well, they don't really give an this... answer to that. Sorry, go on. I have been following this a little bit. Um, mm. And, uh, I mean, essentially what's happened is that the RBA 
produced a um, or gave a, another rate cut mm-hmm. recently, which obviously, you know, as usual, has not been passed on in full by the banks. So I think only only one of them, I think, has passed it on in full, and I think the others have all done partial or nothing at all. I think CBA and maybe NAB were nothing at all. Mm. Um, so the government's kind of locked in this position, which is such a great kind of articulation of some of the contradictions of the monetary system in capitalism and the contradictions of kind of of uh, monetarist theory where mm. um, they will not, they obviously cannot ideologically, so the, sorry, I should say, the, so the IMF, in this context, the IMF has come out last week saying that they think the Australian growth is going to fall, so they've slashed their for, growth forecasts to 1.7% for Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're advising all the governments around the world to start unleashing unleashing a spending stimulus, um, as the AFR reports. So, and this kind of ties in then to the Bank of International Settlements, which has been saying this stuff for years around, um, you know, how is it that we can explain? We've had very low interest rates, quantitative easing all around the world, trying to spur kickstart growth for decade, for what, a decade now. Mm. Um and it's created a lot of debt and it hasn't really improved anything. And so the government is in this kind of um, this position where obviously ideologically they won't accept the need to, um, they won't accept fiscal stimulus because they want to maintain their budget surplus and they're not going to do anything to increase wages because they're not going to interfere in the interests of their donors and their backers to that extent. But yeah. The reason that none of these interest rate cuts do anything, um, and we even had the, I was watching TV this morning, and the chief economist from ANZ, I think it was, was on ABC24, and she said openly, um, you know, the R, because the RBA governor was um, speaking at a conference, I think, yesterday, or speaking at an event yesterday, and mm. essentially and trying to say, oh, no, we're not going to have any more rate cuts, not going to have any more rate cuts. Now, she came right out and said, oh, he's just saying that to try to keep confidence up. There's going to be more rate cuts, but they're not working. Something else needs to happen. So she's out there saying they're not working. And I think there's yeah. kind of – so there's kind of two things that I think come into confluence here, right? Like on on the one hand, you have, well, interest rate cuts don't work to – are not working to generate growth. Why? Because who benefits from the interest rate cuts? Long uh, So corporate – Borrowers, essentially, and other banks. Well, I, okay, no wait, wait that there's no actual transmission mechanism to pass necessarily to pass the effects of those interest rate cuts onto individuals when you're at a point where one, individuals have already got as much debt as they can carry, and two, interest rates, you're already at a point where interest rates are so low that the banks won't pass on further cuts because it affects their profitability. So there's no mechanism for the kind of increased liquidity created by an interest rate cut to actually get from the financial system to individual consumers, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, Sorry. no I do. Yeah, what I like, can you like really, really briefly explain uh, for like for everyone um, why why an why an interest rate cut from the Reserve Bank doesn't automatically mean an interest rate cut from banks? Like, um, because the interest rate and the interest rate cut that the Reserve Bank and I might screw up some of the terminology here, but the interest rate cut that the Reserve Bank 
levies is the interest rate. Essentially, the it's a cut to the in, the rate interest rate at which they lend to banks. Yeah. And so they lend to enable banks to kind of perform short-term money market operations and so on. Yeah. Now, so cutting that interest rate allows it, it is a saving it does it's a sort of saves those banks money and they can theoretically then reduce because their costs have fallen they can theoretically reduce the interest rate that they charge their yeah. own customers but i think but they, don't, but they don't have to yeah they don't have to um and which is what josh frydenberg is now kind of like butting up against because now that the mechanism isn't working he's he's realized he's got no power to actually affect it which is well, why we're now in this bizarre situation where he's, you know, we're, we're trying to get the ACCC, where the ACCC is doing a probe into why the banks don't pass on interest rate cuts. And, I mean, the reason is because, I mean, when the interest they rates are already as low as they are, <laughs> I mean, it starts eating into their profit margins yeah. to an extent that they're not willing to tolerate. And, sorry, uh, um, do you mind if I, if I just take this back yeah, sure. A level really quickly. Is that all right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Go stop ahead. me if I'm riffing on this too much. But like, and this kind of takes us back to the whole context of why do we think that monetary policy works? So how long have we actually had a global inflation targeting regime operated by central banks that achieve that goal through in-market operations? About since about 1970, uh, what? Not, not even 1979. I think the Volcker shock was. I'm probably getting that wrong. Um, good thing this podcast isn't popular enough for people to <laughs> um, yeah. pile on me on Twitter. He got the fucking date of the Volcker shock wrong. <laughs> but so Paul Volcker. So you've got the US goes off the gold standard in '71. Um, inflation was it that started. Late? Shit. Yeah, realize. yeah. I mean, that people forget how little time this kind of contemporary financial system has existed for. Mm. Um, so essentially they go off the gold standard because they've pissed away too much money on the Vietnam war. Mm. Um, and they don't have any gold reserves anymore. Go off the gold standard over the next 10 years or whatever, eight years, inflation keeps rising and they have, and it's exacerbated by, um, the OPEC oil, oil price shocks, yeah. which the U S then attempts to mitigate, right. Um, by essentially saying to, the um, OPEC countries, uh, yeah, you know, funnel that money back through our financial system, um, mm. which means that the um, that the US money supply in a time when it's just come off the gold standard and is still stabilising actually continues to in increase even further because they're now getting this currency pumped through it from the Gulf states. So the inflation keeps going up and up and... Paul Volcker comes in as chairman of the Fed in 78 or 79 or whatever it is. Mm. And that's when essentially the, the, the whole world changes and the sort of the narrative that, that we get fed about this whole period of time starts mm. to unfold. And we get told, well, the problem is that all of you workers were asking for too many wage rises for too long and it kept pushing up inflation. And Daddy Volcker's going to fuck you up. And so Jack's, Jack's <coughs> the interest rate up which has mm. the effect of essentially destroying the American domestic manufacturing industry and transitioning and pushing it offshore, which crushes the working class in America and prevents that kind of development of class power and transitions yeah. the US to being a financial, uh, essentially a, a lender and a banker for the world. 
Um, this is this is this is basically the start of neoliberalism. It is. I mean, it is. It, no, no, it is exactly. It is the start of yeah, the start of neoliberalism. But so then we all switch. Everyone in the world switch switches to this kind of. It becomes accepted wisdom that what we do now is we target an inflation rate. And now, the see, there's some people like this kind of uh, modern monetary theory people who think. Yeah. Who, who sort of say, well, I think I think treat inflation like it's not an issue, which I don't think is true. I think inflation is a serious policy I challenge think, that any I, socialist economy would have to manage as well. Yeah, I, actually, I'd actually really love to do an episode on modern monetary theory at some point just so I could learn more about it. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I won't go into it now, but like, um, yeah. but so, but the the thing is that like, so Volcker. Volcker really and the Volcker shock really then popularizes the work of Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. And Friedman kind of had, you know, developed this, let's call it a theory, you know, this, this sort of way of explaining economic history with reference to the money supply. Mm-hmm. And tries to make the point that, you know, if you increase the amount of money in the economy, then prices will increase. And if you decrease it, yes, so sorry, if you increase the amount of money in the economy, then it will increase economic activity because people need that money to because an abundance of money allows people to do more stuff essentially yeah now i I, there's a lot of nuance here because i think you know there's a lot of people who try to criticize freedom go oh they just go to this simple sort of argument of saying oh well you know the money supply actually doesn't doesn't affect anything it's wrong and I don't think that's true. So, like, of course, the money supply, and I think even Marx makes this point, right? Like, and I think Marx and Friedman are kind of like a lot closer in respect to the foundations of their currency theory than people realise. But, like, if you've got an economy in which there are all these businesses who really want to do stuff, but mm. they can't get the money to do it, then increasing the money supply is going to, is going to lead to economic growth. Because yeah. there was an underlying desire to grow there already, and you've just essentially put more lube into the machine. Mm-hmm. But currency, in and of itself, is is meaningless if there's no if there are no investment opportunities that people actually want to take advantage of. And so there's kind of like so you the the conditions under which an increase in the money supply will generate a sort of like a um, an increase in growth are sort of very specific. And we've, for 30 years, treated them as if they're generic, essentially. And that the causality is kind of the other way around, that this isn't something we do to adjust to um, causal factors in the economy. It's something we do to drive change. It is a causal yeah. factor in and of itself. So to bring, um, to, to bring that back to Josh Frydenberg and what he's doing now and what well, the I, Reserve I, Bank yeah. is doing now... They're so basically, think, well, think, sorry, yep. well, the way I understand it is they're basically attempting to increase the money supply into the Australian economy to drive growth when it's very clear that that's not working and that's not the problem. The problem is well, that, y- yeah. sorry, go on. Well, I think, I think what we're seeing here is this kind of like that contradiction playing itself out because... Um, there are no companies all around the world are stockpiling cash. Mm-hmm. There's huge amounts of free-floating cash in the environment. They're not investing; they're accumulating, right? Yeah. And um, so, increasing the money supply is not going to get them to invest more because 
they do, they're doing fine. They don't want yeah. to invest. Corporate profits are high. CEO pay is through the roof. Board pay is doing well. None of the people involved have got any reason. I mean, most of them are monopolies, so they're not really under huge competitive threat. Most of these companies and, and the individuals responsible for leading them have got no incentive to really go and seek out big new investment opportunities. Um, yeah. You know, they've got enough cash stockpiled and they're making enough money to do what matters to them, which is invest in automation so that in 30 or 40 years they can do away with us completely and they won't need to worry about, you know, um, being competitive in a market. Now, the other way, the people who actually do want to invest in things and do want to buy things are the people in the working class. Mm-hmm. But the interest rate transition, the interest rate reduction doesn't get through to the working class because it's facilitated not by a state-owned financial apparatus, but by a private financial apparatus that essentially has to take a commission for its role in, uh, what's sort of looking for, um, aggregating and distributing currency as a resource. Um, and the lower your interest rates get, the smaller their profit margin becomes, obviously. And so there's a point at which, you know, the banks don't necessarily want the interest rate to go any lower. And so right. they're not going to be interested in passing on I mean, they don't want to give you a 1% home loan. No, um, no, of course not. Like, um, what, what's, like, like, why? Like, why on earth would they do that when, like, there's, the market's not demanding that. Uh, and, yeah. you know, they, and they make money from you. Like, so, so the interest rate mechanism won't work to get money into the hands of the people who would spend it. So, well, how do you do that? Well, you've either got to give them the money directly helicopter money, which I believe is a Friedman term, actually, um, and uh, or you've got to force, you've got to, you've got to essentially force wage increases somehow. Mm. And how do you do that in an environment where you don't have industry-wide bargaining, you mm-hmm. don't have a price, uh, sorry, a price and wage fixing mechanism, um, and, yeah. and what we see here playing out with this pathetic shit with Scott with Frydenberg begging companies to start investing, begging the banks to pass on interest rate cuts, is these contradictions playing themselves out and these fucking morons realising that they've based everything they think they know about how the economy works on essentially a 30-year-old theory based on one use case that occurred in very specific circumstances and was working in the other direction. (laughs) Yeah, it's... um... It must be odd for for Frydenberg to get there, like like because Scott Morrison, I like Scott Morrison, I like I, I I don't have respect for him, but I feel like I feel like he just he just like he's just happy to be prime minister. That's that's all he is. Like mm. he he could not give a fuck whether he achieves anything or not. Like he's just sitting there constantly with that shit eating fucking grin on his face, like mm. just being like, look at me, I'm prime minister. Can you believe it? Like Frydenberg, like, I'm like, gonna just announcing my signature program, my legacy piece of uh, uh, a V8 supercars hot lap for every veteran. <laughs> yes, yes, but that he he's happy with that. Like that that's that's all he wants. Like whereas Frydenberg, you kind of get the sense that like he's like because I've achieved, I've just I've you know I have scraped so hard to get where I am. I want to also go down as a great treasurer, great treasurer, just like as another achievement that maybe his mm. dad may be proud of him for. But I think he clearly wants to go down in that in that realm, right? Mm. But 
but like he's essentially got nothing. He's got no tool. He's, yeah. got, he's got nothing he can do to make like he can't press a button that's like make Australian economy good. I think this is the point when he realizes that he's actually just a bag man for capital. That yeah. When he's like, he's he's standing there howling into the wind and he's like, Hold on, I've been pissing in my face this whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the what, wind's like, blowing the piss straight back into my <laughs> own face. <laughs> it turns out I've been drinking it this whole time. <laughs> But like, 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 the only thing that is going to like boost economic growth is some sort of ability to get money in the hands of people who will spend it, workers. Mm. And it's the very thing that, if you're a member of the Liberal Party, you can't do. And, like, and this is, and it's really well, interesting. Well, you can do it, but not at the expense of the capitalists. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the the contradictions are just so stark. And and this and it's so fascinating as well because and this kind of actually ties into this something we'll talk about later read the PMC stuff, but like you've got the the people at the IMF and at the Bank of International Settlements and whatever. I mean, these people are not necessarily bagmen for capital in the way that Frydenberg is. Like, you know, we're talking about like academic economists, like people who are technocrats to an extent, right? Like, and yeah. so they're kind of at a point where they're all they're 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 thinking to themselves like, yes, you know, I've got a certain model for how the world works, et cetera, et cetera, but ultimately I am trying to achieve some sort of like utility maximization goal here. And based on the conditions that I'm seeing in place, you know, yeah, it looks like we've got to, you know, give get money into the hands of the the sort of broad base of the population. Mm. And those those organisations that have traditionally been aligned with people like Frydenberg, because the, the technocrats who work in them are kind of more predisposed to look for a, a rational answer to some extent, are going in this direction, but Frydenberg can't follow them, obviously, because mm-hmm. he's not interested in a utility maximisation goal. He's interested, not in, a gen, not in a general one at least, he's interested in essentially what's the best outcome for me and my mates. Yeah. And and there are red lines I cannot cross in that in that goal. And so well, and so it's it's kind of showing this like stark kind of reality where it's like these people by even by the standards they set and in terms of the the way in which they view the world are not actually trying to pursue the goals that they say they are. So yeah. you know, when people say, Oh, you know, we all want to achieve the same things, we just have different ideas about how to get there, well no. No, 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 that, that's, that's not that, that, true. Like, that's that's always been bullshit, and that's something I like I think I've only recently been pushing back against more, but um it, like no, like if your goal is to like they have there's there's always this line that's like, Oh, I just wanna grow the pie for everyone. No, you fucking don't. You wanna grow mm. the pie so your mates can get more. Like, mm. it, like that. That's the Australian economy has been growing for for thirty years, and over different different portions of that time, uh, the working class have gotten either more or less. But over the last basically ten years, it's been nothing. Mm. <laughs> it's been almost literally nothing. Wages are sideways, like nothing. Um, like it, it's not the same goal. Yeah, if. If there was, if you actually wanted to get money in the hands of, of like average people and working class people and poor people, God forbid, um, you would be pursuing totally different policies. Mm. Raising Completely. new stuff, but 
but that's uh, that's so beyond the the uh, the pale for a lot of liberals that I think it's, it's barely even worth talking about. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> uh, anyway, the uh, to to move on to the other side of Australian politics for a little bit um, as um, uh, Albo's stoked up uh, the opposition of uh, left-wing unions about the uh, a slate of trade a slate of trade agreements I don't know a huge amount about the uh, specific trade agreements to be honest um, but the unions are pretty upset on the basis of uh, of some of the labor provisions in them. Um, mm. Again, I don't know a huge amount about that, but what I do know um, about these trade agreements is they uh, they uh, contain uh, investor state dispute resolution uh, provisions, okay. uh, IS, uh, ISDS, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. investor state dispute settlement provisions, um, which I consider to be uh, one of the worst innovations of the international uh, global economy um, and the international global system. So uh, investor state dispute uh, settlement mechanisms are basically, are basically a mechanism under which um, if, if any entity invests in a, in a state uh, under like uh, in which there's a treaty between the home state and um, and the, the other state, uh, that if conditions change for whatever reason, they can sue to recoup the profits of that change situation. So uh, the, the typical example of this, admittedly this failed, um, is the tobacco case that a whole bunch of companies are launched against us um, when Australia passed plain packaging laws. So basically, they attempted to sue us for the drop in profits that they experienced when plain packaging came in. Mm. So in my mind, uh, and actually the history of investor state dispute settlement uh, clauses in, in, uh, in, bilateral, in trade treaties is actually basically around fears from uh, mineral extraction companies that communists would take over in Africa and um, and nationalize the mines, and one really, of the right. yeah, yeah, that's where that's so, where the big things uh, stems from. But when did they, when did they start using these things or put them, put um, them in place? Back in the nineteen fifties, um, right? Okay, and, of course. Yeah. Uh, but they've they've started to be imported into uh, more general trade treaties. They like they're basically to they're, they're basically they're, it's basically realized that they're such a powerful weapon. Against uh, against weaker states, um, <laughs> including us, um, that like that capital can use to to basically prevent any policy shift that would affect their bottom line. Um, that they're they're being imported into just a huge amount of treaties. So Do what you- happens? So 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 let's say that I, I do fuck up fuck something around and fuck up your profits and you decide okay. to sue, sue me through the so, ISDS. So, what actually goes down? So, let's say, let's say you're, um, let's say you're, I don't know, uh, this is going to be very close to an actual case that I just can't remember the details of, but let's say you're Peru, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm Rio Tinto. Uh, 
I decide to open up a mine um, somewhere in Peru. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, uh, I open it up under the conditions. You're plumbing my depths. <laughs> I'm, I'm really trying to hit those back walls uh, of, mm. of this mine, trying to find, trying to find the last, the last little mm. bit, finding that last nub of gold. Um, anyway, uh, and then let's say, let, let's say you don't nationalize it. Let's just say you you pass environmental regulations, basically affect my profits because I have to invest in a whole lot more. Uh, I have to invest in cleanup. I have to like not use this shitty chemical I was previously using. I have to compensate yeah. people if they if they get diseases from this shitty shitty chemical I was using. So how do you go about under this, this? Under, the, under these kind of trees, I can go to whatever arbitration body is set up. Um, often they're in Singapore, which is where Australia was sued under um, an investment treaty it had with Hong Kong. It was in Singapore. And uh, basically I can demand that the state uh, repay me for the um for the lost profits that I'm suffering under that new condition. And what if um, I don't? If what if I just don't do it? What if I don't show up? Well, uh, that that's where things get hairier, and it depend, And that's where the U.S. as a as a backer of and uh, particularly if it's U.S. companies um, becomes a bigger player. Um, right. Yeah. So, so you've like, you've basically got to assume that like best case scenario, the company goes to, uh, if I, I don't know if they can, but uh, goes to some court in the US if you do any banking activities through the US and gets your funds frozen. Yeah. Or they get sanctions applied to you or worst case scenario, they just invade you. Yeah, it, it won't, it, it, like, it, it's never got to the point of invading. I mean, except for quite a Well, yeah, it's the implication, yeah. Don. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, these, the, the, like, there, there's... There's sort of those practical examples of where, um, like, ISDS has previously granted companies just, like, huge settlements from places in Africa and and South America um, that are really beyond this, like, are are just essentially giant wealth, like, wealth transfers from, from the poorest people on Earth to these, uh, to large corporations. I, I had no idea that it started, that the history went back that far. So, I mean, yeah. this is really just nothing more than a kind of a continuation of that whole, like, in post-colonial oh, like, thing of, of like, of just, just, just raping and pillaging the yeah. third world in those, those. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, it's I a... mean, it still goes on today, but, but yeah, just like assassinating um, leaders way, and regime like, changes way... and. It's a way of protecting capital under a sort of slightly like international seeming uh, legitimizing factor, basically. Um, so that you and, know, it's, and, well, it's also, and it's also a way of keeping countries that you formerly directly controlled as your colonies um, still economically subservient to, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Particularly where, particularly in situations where, like, yes, you have the, you have, for example, British Petroleum BP. Um, as the as a major investor in in a state, um, mm. it's a um, yeah. It, like basically, I think they're just as a principle. I think they are terrible mechanisms that should not exist. <laughs> um, mm. I think uh, I, like I am not anti trade agreement, but a lot of what passes for trade agreements now are really just sort of 
facilitation of capital to move between different countries and be protected in different mm. countries. Um, so I would, and uh, this is what I would say, you know, in relation to, to labor and uh, I, I, the, they're backing these three trade agreements and they're so it's with uh, Indonesia, Hong Kong and Peru. Uh, I, I believe all of them contain ISDS provisions. That should strike them out just from the beginning. Like they're, they're sh like Australia should not sign onto any treaty that has ISDS provisions. Mm. But uh, like, not only do I say that, the Labour platform says that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, and um, despite despite that, th and this is this is like uh, this is such a pathetic argument. I believe the Labour's defence. Uh, I think it, it, I'm going to attribute this to both Albo and Jim Chalmers is, oh, that only applies when we're in government. Mm. And it's uh, uh, pathetic. That makes no sense. Pathetic. It's like, oh, okay, it's only bad when we do it. No, it's always bad. That's why it's, again, that's why it's like, that's why people fought for it to, uh, to... But, how, how, but it's 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 only it's not even if it's only bad if we do it. So it's like we can okay. So we can say it's good, but you have to trust us that that actually doesn't translate into us thinking it's good. Yeah, and and um, so they basically they basically said how fucking shit is Jim Chalmers, by the way. Yeah, no, it's 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 it's, it's, it's been awful. Like I like I, I I'm genuinely disappointed. I'm genuinely disappointed. Mm. Uh, like, like I, I, like I don't expect Labor to suddenly become socialist overnight or anything like that. But like, it's it's bad. This is well. It would be nice if it wasn't going backwards. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, get, bring bring back the the days when the right wing of the Labor Party was in control and where they actually did left wing policies. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm like it, it's. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm surprised by it because I'm not. It's more just a feeling of uh, of dull, like oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, one one can never be surprised by being disappointed by the Australian Labor Party. Yeah, but that uh, that also brings us to uh, to uh, another pretty uh, pretty bleak uh, thing that's happening in the Australian media. Um, so actually, you know, what? so firstly, just to round out about. So about uh, these trade agreements. Some of the better unions in this country are bas have basically started saying, like, this is a terrible idea. Labor shouldn't sign on to them. They should oppose them, mm. uh, like, um, unless there's proper protection for workers, in, uh, workers under these agreements. Now, I don't, they haven't actually said, go out and oppose them. Mm. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to cast a view on that. But what these agreements which I will say are not really free trade agreements they are they are basically investor agreements between between Australia and these states is basically they allow for the free movement of capital and the free movement of cheaper workers. Like they allow the movement of uh of people to come into Australia 
to do the same work for cheaper. They don't allow like uh, Australia to, or they, they don't facilitate Australian workers to go to Peru or to go to Hong Kong or anywhere to do work at a better rate. They just allow the undermining. Really? So there's, yeah. there's mobility provisions in these agreements. Yeah, that's what the unions are, oppo- are opposing. Like, right, so I, I haven't been following this. That's crazy. Yeah. So look, and, and like, I don't know the full details behind it, so I don't want to get too far into it. But, but what do you? So what do you think? Labor's. But, what is what is the logic here? Do you think this is just a, an electability thing, or is this like a trying to distance ourselves from the trade unions? But, 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 I, I think it's not an elect. I think it's an electability thing. I think it's a stupid electability thing, because like absolutely, because I. You know, like the, the average dipshit I, on the street doesn't give a fuck about of course free trade agreements one way or the other. They don't know what they, they are. Like nobody wins just, an election on the basis of a fucking free trade agreement, no matter which position you hold. Exactly, it's nuts. I like I I don't like, but I think that you you could actually make the argument that apparently all these and, and we'll get onto this bit. All these right wing dipshits want to make. Which is like, oh, it's all about jobs. It's all about jobs. It's all about jobs. Yes, it's all about jobs. So they make the fucking argument. Oh, I, I can't. I like. I. You know, like, like if they were taking it from a genuinely like neoliberal position, where it was like, we genuinely think this is the best thing. That's one thing. But they're not. They're not even doing that. They're taking it from the like, yeah, we just can't be bothered to have this fight, really. You know, oh my God. It's, like, it, it, it's, you know, I, I, I've overused, I, I overused the word bleak last time. I'm going to overuse this word this time. Pathetic. Just fucking pathetic. Well, uh, and, it, and it is bleak. It is bleak as well. I mean, I can't, I can barely watch the news for you because I think the, you know, they're really feeling, capital's really feeling its oats, you know, um, and I think having won this last election when every so soon after winning New South Wales and with everyone having thought Labor was going to kind of clean up, I think that, you know, it's just given them such a kind of a, a boost of confidence, you know, and, and yeah. they're just they're just kind of on that tilt of like, well, we've got another four years and you idiots will vote for us no matter what we do. So, you know, we're going to stick the knife in and twist. Like, it's awful. Yeah, it really is. Um. Okay, to to go on to another another awful uh, part, the the Labour right wing has started to to really reassert itself um, ideologically. So I, I, I honestly I, I almost feel like saying ideologically is too far a, a stretch because it's it's they're barely really saying anything um, concrete about what they want to do. They just don't want us to be left wing. That, that, that that's mm. that's the main thing they're saying. They don't want Labor to be left wing. Um, this guy, uh, Nick uh, Nick Drenforth, uh, I'm pretty sure that's not his name, but I'm not going to bother to try and pronounce it properly. Um, has re- wrote this article uh, about a week ago now in um, in the uh, the Age opinion. Labor has yet to learn the hard lessons of defeat, and uh, there's a sort of I think that like the main things I can take from from this are that firstly he's like we're not allowed to have any fun because uh, he's mm. the first thing he cites is the quote orgy of mockery on Twitter 
and social media director Scott Morrison for the thought crime of looking upon a Macca's smart drive through in, in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> An objectively I mean, good and funny thing. That was, that was, come on, that was funny. Like, also, the, it's not like the left is like, we're going to campaign on this. Like, it was like, no, this is just funny because he's a fucking dipshit. And it's funny to watch him be a dipshit. But this, this, is, this stuff, sorry. Yeah, so, yeah, no, but the, the, the second is witness the orgy of adulation granted to the 16-year-old climate change activist Greta Thunberg's address to the United Nations. Um, I, 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 I'm not going to comment on the fact that there's the word orgy and 16-year-old uh, in the same sentence there, but uh, I'll, just, I'll just leave our listeners to think about that for a bit. I'm just um, reading that paragraph now, and I, the way it ends with, what have the protests achieved? How many climate agnostics or people who accept the science of climate change but worry about the costs? The country so, that, that, so that's a, cli- oh. that's a denier. That's a denier. People who yeah. accept the science of climate change but worry about the costs, that's a climate change denier. That is, has always just been one of the branches of right-wing argument on it. But yeah. this, is just, this is just cut and dried shit from the New York Times. Like, this is like, I mean, these morons like, are just, just copying, you know, this shit straight from David Brooks or whoever and just doing a find and replace on it. This is just fucking vapid garbage. Yeah. Uh, his next thing is uh, talking about... and um. I also want to stress through all of this, there are no citations and there are no specific examples in any of this. Third, mm. mm. Labor's shadow treasurer Jim Chalmers gave a fine light on the Hill speech in Bathurst. Uh, blah, 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 blah. For his troubles, Labourites assailed him, his speech as a shift to the right, as a capitulation to, neo, um, to neoliberalism and a liberal light form of politics. You know, look, I, I didn't read that speech, but... Currently, that is what like they're doing. They're yeah. not proposing anything. They they haven't articulated the slightest form of of uh, like you know like uh, you know I, I wasn't Jordan's hugest fan, but fuck me, he seems like he seems like fucking now in comparison to this. Like like it's um. And the one the, thing I will so, say for this guy is he says down here. He says, it's symptomatic of an intellectually lazy, impractical mindset of activists. And the one thing I will say for him is that he is right. Leftist activists are intellectually lazy and impractical. Yes. But for totally different reasons than what yeah, he's but like, like, got here. <laughs> but it's for the opposite, yes. The, the reason, like, he's not actually, again, and he's not actually citing, he's not actually citing anything that talks about a direction we should go. He's just talking about a whole lot of things that piss him off. Like... That's that's all that's in this op-ed, um, and he. The the one thing, like another thing, I will give him some credit for is he does say that uh, that we need that labor needs more working class people to actually win seats, like to actually hold power. And I agree. I think that's a pretty good idea. He he talks about this quota system, which is not the way I think we should do it. Um, but and he talks about the need to create a more dynamic and uh, and democratic Labour Party, which is something I totally agree with. But I don't think he does. And here's the simple reason why: because I reckon if if we were to propose a fully democratised Labour Party in which the membership had full say, 
over who became leader, who became a senator, who became anything, anything, he would oppose it outright. Because the number one thing that the right wing actually fears in within the Labour Party is some form of Corbyn. And they have fought every fucking uh, attempt to democratise the Labour Party. Um, well, they're doing it again right now. We've got this review of the Labour Party that's going on at the moment that's, I think we've been given like uh, a week or two weeks or something to provide submissions. There's a special branch meeting yeah. coming up soon about I mean, it. Yeah. I mean, South Wales should be burnt to the ground, but that's that's a, uh, I mean, it's, it's related, but it's a separate question. But I just, I find this, like, I, I find this whole, like, Labor has let uh, has yet to learn the lessons of its defeat. So the lessons he's let, let, let's go through the lessons that he's set out. Uh, don't make fun of Scott Morrison. Climate protests are bad, uh, and um, don't rag on people for shifting right. That's that's his three lessons. Um, cool. Like, okay. We're mining a rich vein here. Yeah. Like how? Like, and how is this exactly going to bring us back to government? I, I, I like I put in a second um, I put in a second uh, op-ed by Labor MP Matt Keogh, who is uh, it just headlined Labor must not stray to the green left. Um, mm. I would talk about it, but it's actually so boring that it's it's not worth talking about. Um, it, it, it's basically this bullshit about uh, we have to stick to the center um, without actually defining what the centre wants, who the centre is, uh, you know, what that actually means. <laughs> well, also, also, so they talk about this, like, both of these articles say, they make, the, they make this reference to not, or to, to moving away from, there is, there is this perception in the articles, this, this idea that, that Labor has moved too far to this green left, and yeah. is appealing too much to inner city progressive constituencies. Which I, I, so, I, one thing I'll say to be fair to that point of view is that we won a lot more upper middle class people last election. Well, Labor won more a lot more upper middle class people last election and lost quite a lot of lower middle class people last election. So purely 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 on a results point of view there is the tiniest bit of merit in that but, but it's but, not but but what what i'm what i'm struggling to understand is the kind of the causality so like yes what, is, the, what is it exactly that's the that, big part that's what what is it what, what does it mean what does it mean to appeal to progressive inner city constituencies right so does it mean to have a childcare policy Mm. Does it mean to have a, a policy on removing franking credits um, and increasing the tax base? Uh, yeah, that's that... the thing. there's not a single practical idea in either of those pieces. Because I guarantee that that's not what notion. he means. When, when he talks about, like, oh, we, they moved too far toward the green progressive left, he's not talking about that stuff. It's I guarantee it's just this, like vapid kind of like aesthetic signal you know like i just yeah i i mean well to, to be fair to this guy he, he he runs the 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 right wing think tank of labor and uh if you want some if you want some uh i would call it entertainment 
But um, go uh, go on Twitter and search uh, and search uh, Nick. Uh, I'm going to refuse to get his name right. Nick Dreyfuth mm. um, and Israel. Uh, okay. And, uh, All right. And you can, you can uh, okay. You can, uh, you can uh, you can get a few good things out of that one. Some um, hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> so that gives you an idea of uh, where these people are coming from. Um, but how are we for time? Yeah. Uh, we're running a bit long, but I don't care. We're people. People will listen. Um, anyway, let's uh, let's move on to. Um, so we want to talk today actually about um, the concept of. Uh, professional managerial class or PMC and middle class um, as it kind of presents in in some leftist media um, mm. and um, Ben uh, Ben's pr- produced some some pretty good pretty good shit on this so uh, I might hand over to you well no, so I think it's 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 a good kind of segue from what we were just talking about there right because like the um, you know the the what um, Keo in his piece sort of positions and more well, both of them position uh, is um, that there is this kind of like inner city progressive constituency in white collar jobs um, mm. with university degrees that is somehow opposed to this like blue collar lower income comparatively not in absolute terms mm. constituency um, and that appealing to these two these two constituencies are somehow kind of somehow have sort of different and mutually exclusive interests and so you and and we hear this shit all the time right so like this is a big feature of the discourse around elizabeth warren at the moment Mm -hmm. um and it's a and i just there was a um it, it comes up it comes up in the left all of the time it's one of these kind of like offhand sort of like um you know package concepts uh, i like to call them that that you have to kind of like you don't have to understand to be a leftist but you have to prove that you can throw out there in sentences um to get invited to the right dinner parties you know like it's it's just another it's a feature of the kind of like leftist the circle jerk of aesthetic leftism yeah um so and, and i I've got a really good example of it here, which is this piece that I pulled out of Jacobin yeah. on um, uh, on ecological politics for the working class. Yeah. Um, so, so, so before we start on this, um, I attempted to read this piece. I did not get close to finishing. I uh, read some of it and I got, like, I honestly got too bored. Before I before I finished it, I feel like I'm normally pretty good with this stuff, but this one was too hard. So I mean, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's so garbage. But um, mm. and also, a... also, 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 let's say I normally love Jacobin. Jacobin do some good shit normally. Like I'm, I, I'm very pro them most of the time. Yeah, and and so look, no, I shouldn't say it's garbage. Like it's it's, but there's there's this. It uses this concept and you know, what I think is a flawed. Why? Okay, so in its current form, however, environmental politics has little chance of succeeding. It, its ideological and strategic orientation reflects the worldview of what Barbara and John Ehrenreich called the professional managerial class that centres educational credentials and knowledge of the reality of environmental crisis at its core, blah, blah, blah. Middle-class environmental politics is often directly antagonistic to working-class interests. 
It grounds its theories of ecological responsibility in ideas of ecological or carbon footprints that blame consumers and workers for driving ecological degradation. Now, there's a strong element of truth in this, in that that is a narrative that goes around a lot, and it is bullshit. Um, and I am strongly opposed to all of this kind of pseudo-Malthusian degrowthing garbage that um, goes around in the aesthetic left. Can you, um, can you, ex- can you explain that a little bit more? The, oh, sorry. The... So, well, I mean, th- th- there are a lot of kind of people in the left who are, by and large, you know, like university students or like they're usually organisers or they work for an NGO or some shit like that. And they will say, oh, um, you know, to be able to solve the, you know, the only way forward is to degrowth, that we all have to consume less. We all have to kind of, you know, we have to get you, we have to adapt to the idea of lower living standards. Um, now, I, yeah. I, I think this is bullshit. I, and I, I don't think it's a middle class environmental politics. I think it's a capitalist environmental politics. Oh, because yes. It's a narrative that shifts the burden of responsibility from, for environmental disasters from the choices that capital has made mm. um, to workers yeah. um, who really cannot, uh, I won't go into the, the detail around this because it's a whole other topic, but in my view, can't make consumption choices that will have any meaningful effect on the choices on um, whether or not capital is having a particular environmental impact. But also mm. there is a kind of a, a a bigger issue here as well around like the issue is not that that we can't create the amount of surplus that we have without damaging the environment and the issue is not that you know we just don't have we don't have enough surplus for everyone to productive capacity for everyone to enjoy a high standard of living the issue is distribution not growth right Mm. and so what they're sort of they're sort of they're sort of accepting all it is an argument that accepts all of the premises of of capital but yeah anyway but that's that's kind of that's sort of incidental to what i want to talk about which is more this way of focusing on the middle class versus working class distinction and so Mm -hmm. instead of taking capital as the enemy we're positioning the middle class as the enemy yeah so um and the guy says, so in this essay, I argue for a working class ecological politics aimed at mobilising the mass of workers to confront the source of the crisis, blah, 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 capital. Yeah, okay, sure. But he's sort of positioning capital as the enemy, but through the initial enemy, which is the middle class, right? Yeah. Um, so, look, there, there is, this piece is, it's not bad. I mean, I do agree with a lot of this stuff, but it did get me thinking about this, this concept of the professional managerial class. And... Um, so, we do. So, so the professional managerial. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, I was going I was just gonna say. What what would what do you define as the professional managerial class? Or so what do, what do other people? This provide? is so. This is a concept that came from an uh, essay by John and Barbara Ehrenreich in the seventies, um, I think. And so they are um, uh, sociologists. Um, I think he's a psychologist. Um, and they essentially just wrote, wrote this paper that argues that they were trying, because they were trying to understand how is it that as a leftist, you spend all of your time around sort of university educated people who are always talking about how to save this kind of like, um, you know, this, this group of people that of like blue collar workers, essentially, mm. um, who none of them ever have any contact with. And, yeah. um, 
so they developed this idea of the professional managerial class and said, you know, essentially you've got this group of people within capitalism who um, don't directly create material goods. They're usually responsible for um, designing, essentially designing and managing the processes um, by which capital does produce. Um, mm-hmm. They're facilitators, essentially, um, yeah. glorified foremen and engineers and so on. Um, and that's, you know, that's what you and I both do. Oh, totally, um, yep. And, so, and their argument is that these people have a kind of, you know, they, they, they have a, essentially a sort of a separate set of interests to the working class because they tend to benefit, they tend to have the opportunity to benefit more from aligning themselves to capital. Now, mm-hmm. that has kind of been sort of, and, and I don't, I think their argument is, their paper is kind of, um, uh, I think there's there's a lot more nuance to it than the kind of the aesthetic left gives it, which is the case for most things, and I think it can be useful. But the yeah. way that this concept has been adopted in the years since is essentially to say that, oh, well, there's this group of people who are PMC, yeah. and, you know, they their interests align with capital, and so they're the enemy. But so let's kind of try to unpack this, right? Like, so who are we talking about when we talk about the... PMC, um, and do they actually have materially different interests to w- whatever you know these people are thinking of as the working class, right? So, yeah. in Australia, um, professional managers and professionals make up thirty-seven percent of the population. So, the vast it's a bulk- pretty. Pretty big, pretty big yeah. percentage. So, so professionals is the single largest occupational group recorded in the census, right? And yeah. and this is not a case where you've got sort of like, you know, this is something that's been blow, blown out by a sort of a big low end, right? Like they're still like relatively, you know, high earning compared to the occupational clusters that are at the lower end which are, um, you know, sales and um, less skilled labour and so on. So um, now the median income for ma- so managers is a very small kind of portion. Um, I think it's around 11 12% of the population. Mm-hmm. And their median income is $2,201 per week. Um, that chunk of the population has actually not grown much over the last 30 years. It's sort of been quite stable. Because that yeah. actually does genuinely represent like your managerial core, like your your sort of foreman of capitalism. Yeah. Professionals, however, that represents your sort of technicians. So people like yourself or me, like lawyers, advertising professionals, software engineers, all these people who are required to design the apparatuses of capital and that managers then oversee. Um, yeah. Now, as the global economy sort of expands in scale and the division of labour sort of focuses on having design and management occur in the global north and production in the global south. Obviously, the amount of professionals needed in the global north has increased relative to the amount of um, sort of production workers Mm. who, because more production is now done in the global south, right? But these people, these professionals, and even, uh, sorry, so even within these managers, um, very high earnings are only clustered around the, the extreme top of that income distribution. 
So the 90th percentile of managers have got a median weekly income of $4,039. So that's where you sort of start to get a lot of divergence from the population overall. But yeah. this professional's income, a median income of 1639 I mean, the median income of sales associates, which I think is the bottom, the lowest earning occupational group, is ju- I think just over 800 a week. So yeah. professionals are essentially making double what these sales um, sales workers are doing. But I'm, yeah. and, and that might sound significant, but, I mean, what, what does that mean? I mean, that, that's... But that's Still. not actually that, – that doesn't take you – double doesn't take you from a position where you're a worker who is dependent on income and on going to an environment where you are dominated by your employer every day and dominated by the needs of capital to being in a position where you are a representative of capital. Um, yeah, it doesn't actually bring you to a position where you are yourself a capitalist. It's, yeah, it, does, it doesn't change your – that amount of money does not, I believe, does not change your material interests because then when you start looking at cost of living factors, I mean, obviously these people are enjoying a higher standard of living than some other people, um, but they are under enormous financial pressure. Um, you know, that they are, I mean, usually these are going to be two-income households, right? And mm-hmm. so they are paying the something like the eighth highest childcare costs in the OECD, um, they're dealing with the same housing market that everyone else is in that distribution. Um, mm. you know, these are people who are under financial stress. They have – there are people who are worse off than them, but their material interests and the material relationship they have to capital is exactly the same as any as anyone else. Um, yeah. So they – but what does happen is, I mean, some of them obviously ideologically – don't believe that. But mm. the same is true of blue-collar workers. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, like, if you go out to, like, you know, I don't know, some, if you go to yeah. some factory or whatever, like, you're not going to get, I don't believe, you're not going to get a different response to if you go to a, a law firm and say to people, hey, did you know your material interests are opposed to those of capital? Um, yeah. the, so these people have kind of been victims of this sort of, no, no, you know, you, ideological you, project to, to you, you skewer their it. material interests. Hmm? You can actually hear it from both sides, like like from both like positions. You can hear like a lawyer being being like, uh, "Look, uh, what you don't understand is that if there's no business activity in the economy, I won't have a job, uh, and neither will you, and neither will any of my family. And that's why I support a liberal government." And you can also hear like uh, a guy who works in a factory being like, "Look, mate, if this business goes under, I'm fucked." You know, mm. same same with every other thing. So that's that's why I support Liberal Party. Like, yeah, and I think that. So I mean, I think it would be utter insanity to suggest that these income figures. And I know these are extremely rough. I mean, I just knocked this stuff up off the um, ABS mm. data in ten minutes. But I think it does kind of like it does kind of indicate what I'm what I'm getting at here, which is that I this these numbers are not. The other thing I pulled, sorry, was primary income from business ownership or investments because that potentially you could say, okay, well, if you make all your income, your primary income from a business you own or from your investments, well, that would indicate you are an owner of capital. So about 4% of managers and 4% of professionals do. Yeah. So these are not capital owning classes and so yeah. I, I, they, their material interests are not different. So 
what what do we mean then? What are we trying to achieve when we're sort of carving these people out as separate? And why does this happen? And I think, honestly, it happens because it is one. It's it's something that's done by people who have never who have never fucking worked outside of a kind of this sort of leftist aesthetic sub media sub industry. And so don't actually know what labour processes in a law firm or a consulting firm or whatever are actually like. Mm. Um, and it is, I think, it's this sort of like, um, how do I put it? It is this kind of like, there, there's a particular group of people in left-wing politics, and you you know who I'm talking about, who are... Um, University educated themselves. I mean, they might work for Jacobin or University of Sydney. Now, are, are they not PMs? They don't consider themselves PMC, obviously, but they do. They create this kind of fetishized notion of the working class and mm. construing the PM and, and this PMC concept is kind of part of that, one of these sort of like aesthetic signals essentially to say that oh no i am a um they're trying they're painting this sort of fantastical picture of a kind of storybook socialism that um they've learnt about at university which is of you know soviet propaganda posters and you know um rough sunburnt hands and all of this shit they, they and, want to re they want to recreate the russian revolution yeah, and they want to signal to other people that they're part of that, right? That that's yeah. that they're they're real, they're real revolutionaries, and it's fucking bullshit because as soon as you start construing thirty-seven percent of the population as mm. your enemy, how the fuck are you going to start a viable leftist movement? And also, the only people who are left over as accept so the only people who are then left as acceptable are blue-collar workers but not the ones who vote for the Liberal Party, obviously, mm. um, and people who are in these protected jobs that don't get considered as PMC, so people who work for fucking Jacobin, um, academics, yeah. and, uh, well, academics, actually, they often get thrown under the bus and essentially organisers. So if you're yeah, a 32-year-old yeah. white woman in a cardigan who works for an NGO, you're not part of the PMC, of course. You're someone talking about the PMC on social media. Mm. And... The, when so when let's say the revolution comes and we're at day zero after the party, we've got to sit down and figure out how do we productively allocate land between different kind of different investment uses to deliver on social needs. How do we set up computer systems that can collect and aggregate data to allow us to direct resources around a planned economy? Who's going to be fucking doing it? Yeah, the professional managerial classes. I mean, this is exactly what Marx talks about in terms of capital creating the conditions for socialism. Yeah. Um, the creation of professional managerial classes is, or sorry, I wouldn't, shouldn't we say that, the creation of those skills in the economy and those kinds of workers is just another step in the evolution of creating the kind of social productive capacity that is required for socialism for actually existing socialism to function, the and um and just to to like to to put the corollary of that out there, if you consider yourself part of the professional managerial class, you are actually still part of the working class. Like 
unless yes absolutely you, i mean that, that's yeah, entire yeah, yeah. And, and like unless you like unless you are making the majority of your money like like well not even the majority pretty much all of your money from capital investments uh, like if like you like the vast majority of people are making your money from income from working from labor you are still part of the working class there are different substratas of the working class. The working class does not mean poor. It doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't mean that you're suffering uh, like, uh, as like materially. It just means that in order for you to survive, you have to sell your labor to an employer or to a, a greater entity. So, you know... The professional manager. No, class. beautifully put. I, I think you you put that so much more succinctly than than I did. And that's absolutely the case, and Thanks I think too. those people would then say, "Oh, well, you're just employing outdated Marxist concepts that don't apply." We're talking about a fraction of the working class with different interests, and you go, "Okay, but do they actually have different material interests? No, they might have different ideological and aesthetic interests." Yeah, but like you know, that's you might. All you you might want more blue cheese, and don't get me wrong, I fucking love blue cheese. But like, but it's still that like like uh, having free childcare or having free education or having uh, or changing uh, any of that still makes a material difference in their lives. Yeah, and like, if you start what? basing your political analysis on and carving up classes and destroying, you know. M- murdering Marx's analysis on the basis of that ideological and those ideological and aesthetic criteria, um, well, you're not actually understanding the functioning of the economy. You're just slipping into bourgeois analysis yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, like, that's my, that's my rant. Well, uh, no, no, but I, 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 like, just, just to like, to round this out, like you can say the professional managerial class exists. Like you can define them as this other thing that is defined by, their qualifications and their uh, and what they're doing in relation to capital, but you're defining yourself out of a large working class. When, if you take a a more classical Marxist approach, and by just saying that anyone who has to who survives by selling their labour is in the working class, you actually get yourself a much more accurate picture of how. People are living. Mm. And, and if you start from that base, you can understand the people that we're talking about as, yep, one, absolutely workers, but and two, not a fraction of capital, but a fraction of labour that has this kind of, these, that as the bearers of this kind of set of skills do sort of have this relationship to the means of production that is like that of other, that is different from but essential to the kind of functioning of the social overall social productivity of um of overall social productivity yeah and we're back um so uh we're moving on from uh from uh talking about the pmc to uh talking about some international affairs the first one we're going to want to talk about because i don't want to because i don't want to end on it because it's too fucking depressing um, is about the Kurdish, uh, the 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 Turkish invasion of Rojava um, in northern Syria. Um, so, as has been extensively covered 
buy the news. Oh, actually, you know what? I don't know how extensively it's been covered in Australia, but it's been extensively covered. Here. No, it has been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Trump pulls out the 150 troops from northern Syria that were um, sta- that were with the um, Syrian Democratic Forces, which is the majority, the YPG, which is the um, the leftist Kurdish force uh, in the region, um, which opened up the way for Turkey to begin invading uh, in its genocidal campaign against the Kurds. Um, so apparently there's a ceasefire now. Um, and look, and this is, this is being covered extensively by a lot of other podcasts and by a lot of news, so I don't want to stay up too long. But, like, just to note that, like, what the, what the YPG was doing in Rojava uh, was a really fantastic uh, experiment of uh, democratic confederalism, which I'm not going to claim to totally understand, but that was about gender equality, about uh, sharing resources, uh, and um, was about empowering local communities. Mm. Um, and I, the end of that, or the potential end of that, is going to be a real shame. Um, and you have to wonder was, the extent to which that's one, one if that the extent to which that's one of the reasons why I the US is happy to throw him under the bus, right? I I absolutely think it was. But like I think to, there's still a lot of people in that establishment who were like any sign of communism around the world, you know, like you got to stamp what, that out. And that's what the YPG and YPJ were. <laughs> they're, they're, mm. they're explicitly leftists. They're explicitly socialists. Um, anyway, but um, the other thing that, like, uh, I, I, okay, I won't talk, like, there's apparently a ceasefire at the moment. A lot of people are dead. A lot of civilians are dead. But that's, I'm not going to talk about that directly. What I want to talk about um, is uh, something that I experienced but was probably better summed up even just by the headline, uh, by a piece in the grey zone, by um, by one of my favourite journalists, Max Blumenthal. Ah, the OG. Uh, the OG. Uh, the US. So, so the so Turkey has been trying to get control of this part of Rojava um, with the help of uh, of uh, various militia groups, um, which the which uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, a whole bunch of other um, and some State Department people and stuff have called crazy these insane uh, militia groups. Um, and I was listening to, uh, and Ben will be able to tell with his going immediately upon hearing these words. I was listening to Pod Save America um, mm. and uh, hearing Tommy Beetle, who was a advisor, a policy advisor in the Obama administration, talk about these horrible genocidal groups that that Turkey is 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 uh, invading Rojava with. Um, what they leave out um, when they talk about these groups is the fact that they fucking gave them so much money from 2012 onwards. That, like the groups that they're talking about that are crazy and that are genocidal and things are the Free Syria Army. That mm. that group that we were all like. And I, and I include myself here, that we're all like, oh, yes, these wonderful freedom fighters that are going to overthrow this dictator Assad. These are the people that are now, they're, like, murdering and raping the Kurdish people. They're the ones that we gave money to, that, sorry, that we in the West gave money to through, the, through Turkey 
to try and kick out Assad. So the, the piece from Max Blumenthal is, is a headline, the US has backed 21 of the 28 crazy militias Turkey is leading into Rojava. Um, and it, like, I found myself physically screaming at, um, at my speaker hearing Tommy Vitor talk about how horrible these groups are because like there is just no acknowledgement from the broader u.s foreign policy establishment that they're that they are actually not only partially the cause of this but are totally fine with it mostly <laughs> that turkey is their ally and that they're totally happy. They've been happy to throw the Kurds under the bus like through throughout the last 40 years. This isn't Trump by himself just throwing the Kurds under the bus. Um, the, the US threw the Kurds under the bus in the 80s. It threw the Kurds under the bus uh, in the 90s. Um, the Kurds have always been treated by the US as a proxy group that they can use occasionally um, and then to be dispensed with as soon as uh, they become less useful. So this, like, this isn't just Trump. It's it's a it's a much broader part of um, of U.S. foreign policy, and it makes me fucking sick to hear the to hear these former Obama people talking about these genocidal groups that are attacking the Kurds because they were the ones who fucking backed them. It's just like a tale as old as time, really, isn't it? It, it is, but. But everyone, but like, uh, I feel like we, we just—it's like the U.S. is U.S. foreign policy is John Cleese and Faulty Towers. But every like comedic uh, misunderstanding or slip and fall just murders hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but like, <laughs> but they're not even really slip and falls because they're deliberate. Like. I, uh, I, no, I, it's, posi- it's positioned as, you're right, it's positioned as slip and falls. It's like, oh, who could have known? Yeah. Who could have known that, in tw- you know, we'd just go around the world and spend 30 years accidentally creating re- terrorist organisations? Yeah. Who could have known the Mujahideen in, uh, in Afghanistan could later come to bite us back in the arse? Yeah, who yeah, could yeah. Who could have known? Oh, I, like, I don't know. I found so, it- uh, boys, how about uh, this? How about a little jaunt in Hong Kong? <laughs> <laughs> jokes, jokes, jokes. Uh, we're not necessarily anti-Hong Kong protests. Yeah, but, I don't really have a view. I'm just t- taking pieces. Yeah. But um, anyway, it, it's it's um, it, it's made me just hearing these like Obama foreign policy people like talk about these these groups like they're these you know as as these genocidal freaks. Um, it's just, it's like, it's just made me so angry. I, um, like, I, I literally would be satisfied by like people being like, okay, we made a mistake. Uh, I was part of this, but, but they, they won't even do that. They just are like, they just like, they present everything they did as good and everything Trump's doing as bad. And I'm not saying that anything Trump's doing is good. It's not, but you were part of the bad shit too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Just, uh, just the amnesia of it all is just hilarious. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I find it so hard to deal with. Uh, 
Anyway, but I want to actually end on something that's awesome and that uh, is actually really hopeful, um, which is another foreign policy story, which I believe, Ben, you were saying, has basically been not covered at all in Australia. Bell, yeah, yeah. Um, which is the uh, protests in Ecuador, um, which actually achieved their goal. So Ecuador, um, as Ecuador's president, Lenin Moreo, Moreno, Moreno, Lenin Moreno, um, had, uh, had basically uh, accepted an IMF package of policies um, and debt restructuring, that part of which was going to be um, to cut fuel subsidies to the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was going to, Ecuador's, you know, not the poorest nation in South America, but it's certainly not, certainly not the richest by any stretch. Anyway, uh, in response to these, uh, to, to these sort of sweeter policies, that was, you know, basically a series of further austerity and immiserating the uh, already quite poor um, Ecuadorian people. Um, unions and uh, indigenous, uh, indigenous council, the indigenous council and um, just ordinary uh, Ecuadorians uh, got um, started protesting and rallying together and eventually shut down the capital um, and uh, forced the government to, to move to Guayaquil, which is on the coast. Um, mm. The government Hell yeah. and said, okay, we're not going to accept this IMF, this IMF debt restructuring and, and, uh, and package and we're not going, and we're going to cancel the, the, um, the cuts to subsidies so that people can afford fuel. Um, Ah, beautiful stuff. Yeah, it, it's like uh, I, I know that there are like the only complicated bit of it, and I don't, I barely even want to concede this. The only complicated bit of it, that is that you know, like you know, obviously fuel subsidies mean more fuel, mean more burning shit. Which, but know, but again, but again, I go back to this that it's a different issue. It's the, yeah. the you can't resolve the choice production choices of capital through the consumption choices of workers. Yeah, exactly. But like, this is a huge win for the the uh, the just ordinary people of Ecuador against fucking horrible money interest that was like looking to further immiserate country and uh, and further like gobble up more assets under under you know a debt restructuring plan, which is basically just a giant transfer of wealth to, uh, mm. to capitalists, and they fucking won. They they shut it. They shut the whole thing down. They uh, they joined together, and they won um, through through some very hard protests. Eight people were killed, um, you know. And but I I I, I want to also like there's the great part of this, which is the fact they won. There's the interesting part, which is that of how these protests were covered versus. <laughs> how, in, uh, how, how various protests in, in Venezuela are covered. Um, Hong Kong. Or Hong Kong or, um, or a bunch of other places. Um, but overall, it's, it's a great thing. And I think it shows like, how, how much you can get done with class solidarity and with, uh, with organising people to get out when things get really bad. Um, and a material politics. Yeah. And... Uh, and a, a politics that that encompasses uh, encompasses a hu- like huge swaths of different people. E- Ecuador has terrible problems with racism. 
uh, are particularly directed against Indigenous people. But you can still join together um, and create a, a, a durable coalition that can benefit everyone. Uh, and mm. I think that's, that's what this shows. And I think that's um, it's something to be celebrated. Um, and It's good uh, to hear some good news. Yeah. It's a good, as little, and I mean, this is why it hasn't been covered. It's a good reminder that it's, it is possible to win. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's something we should really all draw heart from. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, like, I, I know we haven't, we haven't covered this yet, but um, yeah, eventually I w I'd like to, to, to do some, uh, to talk about the, um, the coalition government's attacks on unions. Um, and the mm -hmm. insurance integrity bill. Yes, I don't think we're going to be able to to muster up a um, a coalition nearly as broad to no. Fight. But I think it um it does show that when the material interests of people are under attack, it is possible, and it is possible not only to draw these people together, but to win. Mm. Um, and yeah, and with that. Uh, I think we're pretty ready to wrap up. You got any, 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 anything else to plug or to? No, I think drawing hope is a good place to end. All right. Just before we go, uh, I am going to plug uh, All Against All now has an email. Uh, so if you want us to cover anything, if you want any questions answered, email us at all at allagainstallpod.com. Uh, we also have um, an Instagram, uh, which you can follow, which is all, which is all against all pod, uh, and a Twitter, which is also uh, all against all pod. Um, so please follow us on those. Please hit us up on those. Uh, any questions you want answered, uh, anything you want us to cover, let us know. Thank Rock you. All right. Bye.